Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960, your hour. Feel free to call in on anything we've discussed or anything you'd like to discuss. We'll start with Rob in surprise. Hello, Rob. Well, hi, Seth. Um, uh, I'll get to the stuff later, but um, I, I wanted to let you know that uh, Bill confessed to me that he had never heard of Tower of Power. And well, that's unacceptable. He's so, well, he's yeah, fired. So I sent him a link. I sent him a link to one of my favorite albums, uh, "Live and in Living Color," uh, of what is hip, and I just think Tower of Power is one of. The, and you'll appreciate that as a trumpeter. Um, they had some of the best trumpeters around. Um, Greg Adams is their lead, who was their lead trumpet back in the day. Um, we're Facebook friends. We chatted, but he's a lefty liberal Democrat, but, you know, they're from San Francisco, Oakland, Bay Area, so that's kind of expected. Um, but uh, some of their great songs, I mean, I think the only song they ever did that maybe reached the charts was So Very Hard to Go, and and it's a great song, but I think that, well, What is Hip, Down to the Nightclub, You're Still a Young Man, there's just some you know, great... Do you know, did you know this? I, I forgot about this. We have a local trumpet player, Jesse McGuire, who was with them for a while, too. You're kidding. No. Have you ever seen him? He, he's done, like, national anthems and stuff here around sports events. Jeez. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you know uh, that uh, one of the sax players, former sax players, Lenny Pickett, he was the musical director for Saturday Night Live for several years, I think in the 80s, early 90s. I could be wrong on the dates, but... Um, I think that, you know, Tower of Power, uh, being great musicians, and David Garibaldi, who uh, is one of the best funk drummers I've ever heard, um, but then, you know, he has white privilege, so that could be an issue. But, I, you know, in fact, all the band, I think, is white except for their lead singers, uh, which they seem to go through about every year. Uh, the, the singers would be black, but everybody played so well and so tight, and their music was just worth listening to. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and didn't they do a, don- a ton of ba- uh, of uh, backup stuff, too, for other performers, vocalists? Oh, I'm, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. in fact. I, kind of, kind of almost like a, uh, what am like uh, yeah, what, what, Beach what, Boys yeah, what, what, yeah, but what am I thinking of that group that the, that great Showtime documentary was about? Yeah, Wrecking oh Crew. Boy. Wrecking Crew. They're kind of like a Wrecking Crew. The rec- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. And, and Thanks, they bro. were just, I, I think they're worth listening to, and I think, um, and most of them, of course, are, you know, even older than me, if you can imagine. Yeah, no, they're awesome. But, they're just awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't know again, why I'm Bill has never heard of them. Well, I'm, I'm trying to help Bill. It's build, hard to acculturate uh, the Philistines, musical. you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Anyway, I, and I hope it helps, Bill. Anyway, um, and I think he'll appreciate that. Um, one of the things, as you were talking here today, I think in your monologue you would mentioned something about self-government. And, and I was thinking about that a lot because, um, to me, that's one of the most important principles uh, that we've had, and I think it really comes from the Constitution. Um, you know, the, the we the people, the concept, that we're really, you know, the, the I guess, legitimate authority for government. And one of the reasons why, you know, self-government is important is because we don't want, you know, intervention from an external authority such as, oh, I don't know, take your pick, federal, state, local government. And that all of these elected officials are supposed to have been uh, elected by the consent of the government. 
And then I started thinking about, well, the last month of all these ridiculous uh, executive orders where I don't think the consent of the governed has anything to do with any of the executive orders that Mr. Biden has come out with. Um, I think, too, that uh, there's, you know, you mentioned uh, Dr. Fauci uh, and, you know, the whole COVID living in fear thing. Um, it, people shouldn't live in fear and people shouldn't follow, I think, uh, people like Fauci because that just makes them sheep and that doesn't represent self-government. That doesn't represent serious, uh, you know, wisdom, learning, uh, humility, self-discipline. Um, and I think that's very important. And again, public education, um, one of your previous uh, guests had talked about that. Public education, um, really, from what we've seen, they're all subservient. Every public educator and admin person uh, that I can think of in the public school system is subservient to the uh, NEA and other teachers' unions. And that's not self-government. Um, but, you know, as we've talked before, you know, people just need to get on school boards and find out what's really going on there. And that's where self-government really comes in handy. So I guess my, uh, my point with self-government is that uh, we have people in positions of political power who are driven towards political power. And that's not uh, and, and people need to know that ahead of time because. Uh, they're living a lie if they are saying they're serving the people when, in fact, they're serving themselves. And I think we need to push back against people like that. You know, you mentioned Avenatti, and there's just tons of other examples. Oh, I think they happen to be in power now, come to think of it. And they're not at all interested in self-government because they think we're not capable of it, which is why, among other reasons, ego and power madness, they just want to uh, lord over others uh, because they don't think that Americans are smart enough to self-govern. I think that's all I have to say. Well, there's a lot there. There's a lot I know. There. Let, me start, yeah. let me start by just um, validating and agreeing with everything you said. And and the idea where where does the notion of self government come from was how you started the Constitution. It. Well, it's before it's natural, prior. It's even it's prior. Law. It's prior to the Constitution. It's natural prior to law. the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence opens up. We hold these truths to be self evident. And the funny thing is, when you go to the Constitution, its opening words are "We, the people of the United States," in order to form oh, a more yeah. perfect. It's the same we. It's the same yeah. we. It's the same people yeah. that James mm -hmm. Madison speaks of in Federalist 39, where, mm -hmm. where he says every votary of freedom to rest all political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government must, mm -hmm. must declare for the genius of this Republican form of government. So the first time I know of that the phrase self-government is actually used, I don't think it's Montesquieu. I actually think it's Madison in 39, Federalist 39. But yes, of course, it predates the Constitution, as the Federalist Papers did, or it's the Declaration of Independence. We the people. Here the people rule is not just about the Congress of the United States. It's about well, the entire exactly. constellation of our constitutional system. 
Well, exactly. And, and unfortunately, uh, because of what we've seen from the election and this uh, mindset that whatever the media tells people they believe, and it's the Dr. Fauci's who are not really... But you do understand this was the progressive idea, is that we would be governed by experts, not by the voice of the people, right? This, well, this, this is what Woodrow that, Wilson brought and wrought. Well, and, yeah, and, that's, a, that's a very good point. Right? A very good point. Yep, absolutely. And that's where things just started to go wrong, I think, under Woodrow Wilson, because that was the sort of elitist ruling class uh, way of thinking that, you know, us uh, backward hick, uh, deplorable uh, idiots, whatever they're calling us today, crazies, um, just can't self-rule. We can't uh, govern our own lives, let alone a country. I think there were two places we went wrong, and I think that was the second. I think the first was the Confederacy and the dope faces that supported it, because it's the same notion, really, stripped of its racial implications. Isn't it the same notion? of slavery and making slaves of, of human beings, whether based on race well, yeah. and in terrible conditions or anything else that we want to declare for. And it goes to the second thing you said, Rob, which was um, not just self-government, but consent of the governed. And that was the whole problem, uh, philosophical problem with slavery, is that uh, no man who was a slave ever consented to be one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and no American consented to be ruled by experts who they never voted for and who never submitted themselves to the election of popular will. Absolutely, Seth. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. Here we are yeah. because the progressive state has become unrestrained and it is our duty, how shall I put it, to save the revolution. Yeah. And we're the revolutionaries now. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine that. Well, you could do <laughs> worse. Right, you, you, you could do worse than being in the tradition of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and George, John Marshall and George Washington. George Washington's birthday was Monday. The University of Washington is trying to take down his statue today. Do you see that? What a lovely thing. Thank you, progressivism. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We just give all this respect to people who love to declaim against the United States for what an unfair country we are that engages in systematic ill treatment of people. Let me read you about a country that truly does that. I'm reading from Amnesty International, so no one can say that I'm reading some right-wing source. This is Amnesty International. Torture and other ill treatment, including through the denial of, medica- of medical care, remained widespread and systematic. Such treatment is committed with impunity. Cruel, inhuman, and degrading judicial punishments are carried out routinely. Scores of people were executed, sometimes in public, several under the age of 18. Torture and other ill treatment. If you listen to the left, you'd think we were talking about the United States, but we aren't. We're talking about what Amnesty International says about Iran. Today, in the Wall Street Journal, Wang Ziyu, a former prisoner in Iran, tells the tale. You know, it's somewhat like the 1970s, 
where we couldn't really grasp the enormity of the human rights violations of places like the Soviet Union unless and until we heard from dissidents who were imprisoned and escaped or were freed. This former prisoner in Iran writes, Iran, Europe, and many American progressives are pressuring the Biden administration to revive the 2015 nuclear deal known as the Joint Comprehension Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Official groupthink is coalesced around a singularly misguided belief. The U.S. has so badly mistreated Iran in the past that it must engage and appease the Islamic Republic now. I understand the view because I was once taught to believe it. This mindset is what convinced me in 2016 that I could safely do research for my dissertation in Iran. My optimism was misplaced. Not long after I arrived, I was imprisoned by Iran's brutal regime and held hostage for more than three years. How does that not chill you to the bone? Let me continue. When I went to Iran, I shared the prevailing academic view of the Middle East. I had absorbed the oft-repeated lesson that political Islam arose in response to Western colonialism and imperialism, and that the West, particularly America's Middle East behavior, was chiefly responsible for the re region's chaos. My professors taught that the U.S. had treated Iran with a mixture of Orientalist condescension and imperialist aggression since the founding of the Republic in 1979. I believed America's role in the 1953 coup that removed Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh explained everything that had gone wrong in Iran. A lot to say about that. Convinced that the mullah's hostility towards the U.S. was exaggerated, I often dismissed allegations of the regime's malign behavior as nothing more than American propaganda. Since it was obvious that American foreign policy itself was the problem and that the regime would happily normalize relations once the U.S. pivoted away from disrespect, I assumed I'd be left alone in Iran if I remained apolitical and focused on historical research. Imagine my shock when the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence arrested me on false espionage charges in August of 2016, shortly after the implementation of the JCPOA during what appeared to be a period of rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran. I was put into solitary confinement, forced to confess things my interrogators knew I had not done, and I was sentenced to 10 years in prison. My interrogator made clear that my sole crime was being an American. He told me I was to be used as a pawn in exchange for U.S.-held Iranian prisoners and the release of frozen Iranian assets. That's how I was released. My terrible 40-month imprisonment was a period of intense re-education about the relationship between the Iran and U.S. The Islamic Republic is an ambitious power, but not a constructive one. It's a spoiler, projecting influence by exporting revolution and terrorism via its proxies in the Middle East. Domestically, the mullahs have failed to deliver on their political and economic promises to the Iranian people, on whom they maintain their grip through oppression. Nothing I'd learned during my years in the ivory towers of academia had prepared me for the reality I, countered, I encountered in an Iranian prison. I learned what many Iranians already know. The regime's hostility toward the U.S. isn't reactive but proactive, rooted in a fierce anti-Americanism and meshed in its anti-imperialist ideology. As I witnessed firsthand, Tehran isn't interested in normalizing relations with Washington. 
it survives and thrives on its self-perpetuated hostility against the West, a posture that has been integral to the regime's identity. The regime didn't dis- excuse me. The regime didn't regard President Obama's engagement as a goodwill gesture, but rather as an iron fist under a velvet glove. Iran's revolutionary regime retains power through conspiracy and intrigue and views everything through that lens. The notion that it will be difficult for the U.S. to regain Iran's trust after quitting the JCPOA is incorrect. The Iranian regime has never trusted the U.S. and never will. When I was being interrogated in Evan Prison in the summer of 2016, my interrogator boasted that he and his hardline colleagues were eager to see Donald Trump elected, not because the regime viewed him as the type of pragmatic leader they could deal with, but because it would justify a more contra- excuse me a more confrontational stance against the great Satan. The menace of the Islamic Republic can't be appeased. It must be countered and it must be restrained. Only the U.S. has the capacity to lead such an endeavor. For 42 years, Iran has demonstrated that it changes its behavior only in response to strength in the form of American-led international pressure. If the Biden administration returns to the JCPOA without extracting concessions from Tehran beyond the nuclear threat, it will relinquish all U.S. leverage over the regime. Diplomacy can't succeed without leverage. Only by showing strength of will can President Biden hope for genuine progress in containing the Iranian threat to peace. This is bone. Ch- this is chilling. It's chilling. You have a regime that opens its parliament with chants of death to America. You have a regime that imprisons Americans like this for years for no reason, executes dissidents often under the age of 18 for everything from political crimes to what they call sex crimes. A sex crime is being a homosexuality and they hang you in public. And it is our fascinating idea that we're engaging in giving them money and appeasement in negotiating with them, hoping they'll change their ways. How do you change the ways of a regime that is engaged in that kind of behavior a priori? with and without a JCPOA, with and without it, prior to, during, and since it. It's not nonsense on stilts. It's insanity on stilts. I think, though I'm not certain, but I think that's Eddie Money playing the saxophone. I know he's a saxophone player. I think he plays that intro to that song. I think he does. I'll uh, be willing to stand corrected if I'm wrong. Speaking of this governance by expert, Paul Mirangoff concluded I wasn't able to finish. To the extent the unvaccinated feel they are at risk, they can avoid restaurants, theaters, etc. It's up to them whether to take the risk associated with going to these places. I'm not going to stay home once I'm vaccinated so they can go out without risk. I don't think Fauci is making his recommendations or whatever they are in bad faith, Paul says. I just don't think he's acting out. Oh, I'm sorry. Paul continues. I don't think he's acting out of a bad motive. I just think he's very far off base and not for the first time. Rick Hume was quoted yesterday, I think it was. 
as saying the problem with Fauci is he knows a lot about one little thing. He's an expert in one little thing. And that little thing is not education. It's not at the economy. It's not psychiatry, psychology, sociology. It's not politics. It's about virus containment. But the problem with that is, the problem with that is, is he has said so many contradictory things about the area of his supposed expertise. That's the problem with accepting even what Britt Hume is trying to give him a little bit of room for. Do we still have the Fauci thing? That's the real problem. We have been told again and again that he is an expert in virus containment. But this expert has been so wrong about so many things that it's hard to give him the credit for even that. Now, the man does happen to be 80 years old, and it's entirely possible It's entirely possible that the shelf life of his expertise is worn or threadbare. But this is what we were used to from him for the past year. This under the Trump administration. Go ahead, Bill. Bottom line, we don't have to worry about this one, right? Well, uh, you know, obviously you need to take it seriously and do the kinds of things that the CDC and the Department of Homeland Security are doing. But this is not a major threat for the people in the United States. And this is not something that the citizens of the United States right now should be worried about. We'd be changing our habits. And if so, how? No, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day by day basis. I don't think this is something that the United States public should be worried or frightened about. Mm -hmm. I think the risk is very low right now for the United States. Right now in the United States. People should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it? Because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better. And it might even block a, a droplet. But it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course, of course. On and on. We even have him admitting to what he thought he should tell us, not what he thought the science was about herd immunity, changing it from 65% to 75% to 80%. And we have seen them change the times around which people had to isolate if they were exposed from 14 days to now seven. These people who are we told we are told are very expert at one thing seem to be not that expert even at that. Why we listen to them on anything beyond their area of expertise when they prove themselves incapable of telling us things they're supposedly expert at is beyond me. It's beyond me. And if we're going to have a semblance of public health, I think it's time to stop listening to the people who have been consistently wrong and failed at their job. The CDC is short for the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. How'd they do?
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. To be a kid in America, you have to be born. This is an amazing moment that took place in the U.S. Senate today. I imagine most of the papers will not cover it. But Montana Senator Steve Daines was asking Javier Becerra, who is Joe Biden's nominee to be the Secretary of Health and Human Services, about abortion restrictions. This was today. You listen to this. Go ahead. Name one abortion restriction that you might support. Senator, let me let me try to respond this way. Um, I have tried to make sure on this important issue for so many people, where oftentimes, again, we have different views, but deeply held views, that I have tried to make sure that I am abiding by the law. Because whether it's a particular restriction or whether it's the whole idea of abortion, uh, whether we agree or not, we have to come to some conclusion. And that's where the law gives but, us but the is there, to just To be clear, is there any line you would draw? Is there just one, just one restriction that relates to abortion so you're, that you're you might support? Senator, you're talking to the spouse of a uh, OBGYN who for decades has practiced saving lives of women and babies. And I can tell you that from the stories I've heard from Carolina, my wife, I know how hard many women struggle just to save the life of their baby. And so what I would say to you, and I know that right now as I speak, my mother has blessed me this morning as I got ready to come here. And last night I know when she prayed the rosary, as she does every day, uh, every evening with my aunt, that she said a prayer and included me in that well, prayer. Well, you know, part of it's the battle for those who don't have a voice, which are the little babies. Um, and you didn't answer the question about any, even one, even one restriction on abortion. Um, I didn't get an answer from you. Let me just throw one out there. How about a ban on the lethal discrimination of babies who are diagnosed with Down syndrome? And so, Senator, you, once again, it, if I can simply say to you that I respect the different views that are out there, but what's important is that it makes sure that yeah, it's but, but my you, view you, is according you, to you the are going to, if you're confirmed, you're going to be the head of the HHS. It's a, it's a huge organization. It has profound impact on our society. How about a ban on sex-selective abortion? Whether, you, whether the little baby is a male or a female, would you say you can't have a sex-selective abortion? And I respect those who take a, a particular view. Uh, my job will be to make sure that I am following the law. There's a ban on partial birth abortion. I know that question came up yesterday. Is that um, yes or no? Would you support a ban on partial birth abortion? Again, Senator, you're asking questions which will touch on aspects that I know have different views. And what I can say is that I will make sure that I'm respecting the law on those issues. Recipsaloquitur. The thing speaks for itself. Would you put a restriction on abortion if it involved the lethal discrimination of babies with Down syndrome? And he would not say no. Would you put a restriction on abortion for purposes of gender selection? And he would not say no. What are we, China? Or the Third Reich? People love to compare us to those kinds of regimes when it comes to the death penalty. 
How about comparing us to those kinds of regimes when it comes to the birth penalty? This man is way too extreme to be our Secretary of Health and Human Services. He would not restrict abortion for purposes of Down syndrome or sex selection. You run out of words in the thesaurus. You want to go to gruesome? You want to go to abhorrent? You run out of words. You want to go to cruel and degrading and inhuman and inhumane? You run out of words. But of course, this is a moderate Democrat, moderate Democratic presidency. Abraham Lincoln said, nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and imbruted by its fellows. Imbruted. It's a good word. Imbruted by its fellows. Our founders grasped not only the whole race of man then living, but they reached forward and seized upon its farthest posterity and erected a beacon to guide their children and children's children. And the countless myriads who should inhabit the earth in other ages. Wise statesmen as they were, they knew the tendency of prosperity to breed tyrants. So they established these great self-evident truths that when in the distant future some man, some faction, some interest should set up the doctrine that none but rich men or none but white men were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, their posterity might look up again to that old declaration of independence and take courage to renew the battle which their fathers began so that truth and justice and mercy and all the humane and Christian virtues might not be extinguished for the land, from the land. Abraham Lincoln, imbruted by its fellows, because of dint of Down syndrome or being the wrong gender. I really, really, really would love to know whether the New York Times and Washington Post or Arizona Republic will cover this tomorrow. And I would really, really, really love to know why people who like to expatiate upon what conservatism means. Think that the president that gave us judges like Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett are deviations from conservatism. There is a threat to this regime taking place, not just the regime physically, but the regime intellectually. And there's only one movement that can stop it and save it. Only one. Cinematographer's party. That's a great line. Paul Simon said he'd never been to a cinematographer's party. He just needed those syllables. <laughs> a cinematographer's party. That's beautiful. Great. Um, when I think about the conservative movement as I was speaking about it in my monologue and I was making reference to it in the last segment, I was thinking of um, something Charles Kessler wrote years ago. All kinds of movements have flourished and existed 
in America. There was a temperance movement. There was a labor movement. There was abolitionism, women's suffrage. The, mo the movements organized around single issues tend to die out after either losing big or stagnation or threatening to become so successful that one or both of the major political parties had to co-opt them. It's important that we remember that conservatism is not a single-issue movement. It's not a single-issue movement. It's what Abraham Lincoln said to George Meade after Gettysburg. It's all our territory. And it begins, of course, with life. Of course it does. It has to. That's where all the world begins, with life. But it has to understand, if anyone is going to talk about, write about, think about, or speak about this movement, conservatism, it has to understand that in the hands of a nominee who said what I just played on the air in the previous segment, in charge of our nation's public health, that if we aren't in a regime-level struggle, if you don't understand that, you don't understand nothing. You understand nothing. We're here to understand. With all that getting, get understanding. We try and do it here. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed.